We continue with our Sunday evening series called Training with the Twelve, and most of you have been here enough times uh, by October, I hope, to know what that's about, uh, following the Twelve and seeing what they learned from the Master, and applying that to ourselves as Apostle number 13, hopefully, uh, since he had them commissioned to begin the kingdom and maintain the kingdom. Probably a few lessons in there that they learned that might be good for us. So we've had a number of different topics. Uh, A couple weeks ago we started the topic on Jesus dealing with people. Hopefully we can learn a little something about dealing with people from how Jesus did. So we've gone through the four Gospels and looked at every case where Jesus talked to somebody, dealt with somebody, uh, separated those out into groups and trying to make some... Uh, applications out of it. So far we've talked about how he dealt with God. First we covered that, how his prayer life affected how he dealt with people probably. And then last couple times we've covered how he dealt with the multitudes and how he dealt with the prospective followers that came to him. The multitudes, if you remember, uh, were just overwhelming. They were around him all the time. They wanted to be healed. He just attracted them wherever he went. Uh, They crowded so close to him that he couldn't eat. They crowded so close to him that he had to escape in a boat sometimes. Uh, They wanted to be close to the master teacher. Uh, Very unlike today. I thought of that while I was walking up here. I thought, man, I left the people five minutes ago. They're they're way out there. (laughs) I don't know why we do that, but if you're comfortable, I am too, so fine. Probably to draw a distinction that this is not the master teacher, and we're going to stay at least five rows away. Okay, then we looked at prospective followers and uh, how he treated them, and he discerned their attitudes. Uh, paid attention to whether they were serious or not and tested them, uh, made things a little mysterious sometimes. Uh, I got in trouble at home for saying that Jesus was almost rude. Uh, my helper did not uh, approve of that term. She thought I should have used audacious or something better than calling him rude. And I didn't mean to call him rude, but I looked back at my notes, and that's what I put in there. But uh, he, he was sort of almost rude, is what I was trying to say. He was, uh, uh, well, I can't talk my way out of it. I'm in trouble. So we'll just go on. All right, tonight's uh, lesson, we're going to move a little closer, uh, away from the multitudes, away from the prospective followers, we're going to go to the, the disciples, what the Bible gospel writers call the disciples. Uh, these were part of the multitude that came apart in the sense that they followed him enough to be called followers. Now, there were a lot of people in the multitude that probably came out to see him once or twice and went away. Uh, But these folks traveled with him a lot, or at least when he was close to their town or whatever their uh, job and calling and geography would allow, it seems. Uh, Disciples means follower, means students. Uh, So they picked him out as the rabbi they wanted to follow. 
And that was a common thing in those days. People would pick a rabbi and be with him as much as they could to learn as much as they could from him. Uh, so these were the disciples. Now, from the disciples, he picked the twelve and started calling them apostles, which were special messengers, the ones that were sent out. But uh, disciples is used a lot more than we think it is. In fact, probably about half these stories that we look at tonight, uh, I bet most of you say, I thought that was the apostles. Uh, but if you read carefully, which is one benefit of doing a kind of focused study like this, you notice things that you don't usually notice. Uh, when we get to the story of the uh, calming the sea, how many pictures have we got of Jesus in the boat with the apostles in the back? And that's the way we tell it. You know, we probably even give them names. That's old Matthew over there and Peter and all that. says it was the disciples. We don't know who was in the boat with him. Just some of his followers. So anyhow, pay attention to that as we go through. So we're going to see how he dealt with disciples, folks that had committed a step beyond that prospective follower uh, to be one of his students. All right. Uh, first group, and I kind of summarized these scriptures at the end by he corrected them. Uh, they had a lot of wrong ideas. They had priorities out of whack. And Jesus straightened them out on those. Uh, if they were going to follow him, he would tell them, no, this is not the way to do it. Uh, John 9, 2, is, we're not going to look that one up, but a story of uh, the blind man. And it says his disciples asked him, who sinned? Uh, this man or his parents? Well, the common man in that day believed that if something bad happened to somebody, uh, that there had to be a sin involved, that they caused it. Somebody caused it. And so they looked at this blind man and said, did he sin or his parents? Which one's responsible for this? And Jesus said, neither one. That's not the way it works. God, God doesn't punish you with blindness for sinning. Uh, so he explained them. He cleared them up on that. Uh, John chapter 4, we won't look at one up either. It's such a famous story, the Samaritan woman. But there's one little phrase in there that's kind of interesting. Uh, they come to Samaria. Of course, the apostles didn't want to come there anyway, or the disciples didn't want to go through that area. Uh, but Jesus told them that's where we're going. And when he saw this place, he wanted to stop and he probably knew the woman was coming. And it says the disciples went shopping. He said <laughs> they had other things to do. Uh, and they may have needed to do other things. Maybe it was God's will that Jesus be left alone here. I don't know. Uh, but they had uh, the priority there that we've got shopping to do. Jesus' priority was, i got to talk to this woman. And so he stopped there and they went on about their mercenary business. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, let's a couple stories close there, so let's look at that one. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 is where it starts. Uh, then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Not all of them, obviously, but as many could get in the boat, probably. Uh, without warning, a furious storm came upon the lake. So the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. 
The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Okay, They had a insufficient, at least, and probably worse than that, wrong conception of who Jesus was. They hadn't figured out who this was yet. They were following him. He was the best rabbi they had ever heard. And you got a bonus of free meals every once in a while and things like that. But they were following to learn from him, but they didn't know who he was yet. And so when he does this, I mean, they're shocked. They, number one, he accuses them of a little faith, uh, but they don't know evidently who he is, that he is God, that he's the son of God, and they figure they're going to drown. And so he chastises them first, and then he just stops the storm. And that's first it occurred. In fact, they want to know what kind of man is this. They haven't even figured out that he's got the divine thing going on, too. So he changed their mind on that in that situation. Matthew 26, another Good one where he changes their perception of things. He's in the house of a Pharisee. Uh, I didn't say he was a Pharisee. This is the calling Simon the leper for some reason. Uh, Jesus was in Bethany. This is Matthew 26, 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, when his followers saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you'll not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay. He threw a couple things in there that they probably just shook their heads about. Like, prepare me for my burial? Where'd that come from? Uh, they had no clue about that, I don't think, yet. Uh, but their priority was, here's a whole lot of money, and this lady wasted it. So Jesus straightens their priority out, says, no, it was a good thing to do. It's, I needed to be prepared for my burial, and it was a beautiful thing she did. Now, I don't think they understood that on the spot. <laughs> Probably they maybe figured that out few months later, but uh, he was correcting them. He was changing their priorities and ideas as they followed him and learned from him. Yeah. Go to John 6 for the next one. It's a little more lengthy passage, but I think it's worth reading to see how he treated these disciples or what he did with them besides correcting some things, and we'll get to teaching in a minute. But John 6... Down in verse 60. Uh, well, that's the summary of it. Let's go up a ways. Uh, actually, the whole... Uh, 
clear up in verse 25. It's where the story really starts. I'll let you read that at home. Uh, but he talks about he of him being the bread of life. Uh, can't find the sentence, sentence at the end. But anyhow, he, he tells them he's, I, oh, there it is, 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. And on and on. And the Jews heard this as he was teaching his disciples. And they began to grumble because he said he was the bread that came down from heaven. And then he told them to stop grumbling among themselves. Anyhow, it just goes on and on. He gets them all fired up here. Explaining to them that he's the bread of life. And unless they eat my flesh and drink my blood and all that. I mean, this is a pretty heavy passage. So read that all when you get home. But verse 60 is the conclusion. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me lest the fathers enabled him. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus turned to the twelve, which tells us he wasn't talking to the twelve, he was talking to the disciples, and he said, do you want to leave too? And Peter had a classic, he said, well, where would we go? <laughs> you know, we don't have any place to go. Uh, we've committed our lives to you and we're with you. But anyhow, that whole passage there, and it's still a hard saying today. I mean, there's some things in there that are hard to explain uh, in our theology and the things that we think we have figured out, that's some tricky stuff in there. Well, that's what Jesus did to his disciples. He didn't coddle them. He didn't make it easy. He didn't say, well, they'll be ready for this in a few years. No, he dropped it right in the middle of them. I'm the bread of life. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood. And some of them said, I, we can't handle this. You know, we're out of here. Okay. So he ran a bunch of disciples off is, in essence, what he did. Um, Matthew 14, let's look at that briefly because I think it's a part of the story we hardly ever pay attention to. I said he tested their faith here. Let me show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 14, beginning down in verse 15. Uh, As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now that for a test. You don't follow me, give them something to eat. You take care of it. I think that's pretty heavy 
duty delegation. <laughs> the disciples had figured out, man, we we got all these people here, and we're out here where there's no concession stands or anything. We're in trouble. And he said, they don't have to leave. You give them something. And they immediately went to the pure physical, even though they were disciples of Christ. They said, well, we got five loaves of bread and two fish. And then he stepped in to teach them the lesson. He said, bring them to me. And he told them to sit down on the grass. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and told them to pass it out. And what do you think they thought when they handed that first basket to the guy on the front row? People on the second row are in a heap of trouble. But it just kept going. And the baskets just kept moving and everybody kept eating. And from where he started on that, they said, we we can't handle this. He said, yeah, you give them something. He showed them that with with his power, they could do things like that. They were slow to pick up on it. Don't think they got it all that day, but... As they grew, they learned. And I'm sure the apostles were watching all this and learning how it works. So he tested their faith. Uh, he taught them. We're so familiar with Jesus' parables and things like that that uh, we, don't, we don't need to talk much about them. But he taught the disciples. says so he explained parables to them. Now, he didn't explain all of them to the disciples. Often it was later with the apostles that they'd ask him. But sometimes it says the disciples ask him. And this Matthew 13 is one example of that. Uh, Matthew 13, 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. Well, his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Now, he had told a bunch of parables. But the weeds in the field stumped them. They didn't know about that one. And it is a classic parable that we pay very little attention to. Uh, in fact, we abuse it sometimes. But it's back over in verse 24. And, uh, it, yeah, it's worth looking at for just a second. Uh, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field. But then his enemy comes in and sows weeds. And when it sprouts, there's weeds and there's good wheat. And the servant said, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? He said, an enemy did this. And he said, do you want us to go and pull them up? He said, no, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow until the harvest. That time I'll tell the harvesters. First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it to my barn. Disciples couldn't figure that one out. And he said, that's the kingdom. That's like going to be the end of time when we sort this out. In the kingdom are good followers of me and people that aren't good followers of me. And you know what Jesus said about that? That's okay. We will sort it out at the end. Doesn't that kind of shock us? I mean, isn't that our responsibility to get all the bad ones out? And make all the rules and regulations that we can keep real good track on them and see when this one slips off the track and run them off? 
Not according to this. Yeah, if there's, uh, if we know it and they're rebellious and they've been given opportunity to repent and refuse and all that, yes, we've got a process for that. But he's saying you, you can't really tell the difference. And if you try to get all the weeds out, you're going to mess up just as much wheat as you do weeds. I think that's pretty universally true. It seems to me, anyway, that a lot of religious groups that set real tight rules and we're going to keep all the evil out and we're going to be pure and all that, they tend to stay pretty small. I think they run a lot of weed off with their weeds. Maybe. Anyhow, that's one place where he taught them things. He taught them to pray. He told them not to worry about life, that clothes and food and all that. God was going to take care of them. Uh, Luke 17, he gave them four lessons, I called it, right in a row. Uh, glance at that briefly and then go on. Oh, yeah, I called it four lessons because they're so distinct in there. There's uh, talked about the coming of the kingdom and people that cause people to sin or cause little ones to sin or other people to sin ought to be have a millstone tied around their neck. Uh, anyhow, it's just a whole par- whole chapter of uh, lessons. All right, now this warning thing, I, we're going to spend a little more time on it because I think it's interesting how he dealt with the disciples on this. Uh, remember, we talked about the yeast of the Pharisees in some detail and how the apostles uh, got confused about that. We call that one poisoned bread. But in Matthew 16, there he's talking to disciples. And he tells them, you beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. So that message was more than just for the apostles. He told the the disciples about that too. And then let's go to Matthew 23 because that's his follow-up to it. He warned them about the yeast of the Pharisees, their teaching and what problems it would cause. And then Matthew 23 is... It occurred to me while I was reading through it this week. You could do a pretty long series just on Matthew 23. There's some amazing stuff in there. You could do a lot of good, I think, by understanding what he's condemning and why he's condemning it. But instead of doing a long series, let's look. take about five minutes and look at it maybe. Uh, Matthew 23 starts out. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So this is a little bigger group. It's probably closer to the multitude, but uh, the crowds. And gospel writers use that quite a bit. I think it was probably when he was in town and people were following him or something. And it often says that he spoke to the crowds and then he turned to his apostles or turned to the twelve and talked to them a little while. This one's a little different. Uh, He talked to the crowd and to the disciples, 
And listen to his warning. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. They are the religious leaders. But do not do what they do. There's the big warning. You've got to obey them in the sense that they run the temple and are the religious leaders and have that kind of power and all that. But don't do what they do. And then he ticks a few things off that they do that his followers aren't supposed to do. The first one, he says, they don't practice what they preach. Now, that might be a part of don't do what they do, but I've made a point out of it. They don't practice what they preach. You can, when they're making a ruling from the temple and with the power that they have by the law and all that, yeah, you've got to pay attention to them. But when they're telling you all this other stuff, they don't practice it. They don't practice what they preach. So don't do what they do. Secondly, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They make up all these rules and regulations. and That's what they sit around in rabbi school all day for and argue about these things and make up big rules and stuff. They don't follow them. And they don't help you help you follow them. They're just making rules. Burdens on men's shoulders. Number three, he says, everything they do is done for men to see. <clears throat> Toby's lesson last week about pray in secret and uh, give in secret and all that. He, Jesus said, don't do what they do. And one thing they do, everything they do for men to see. So don't do it that way. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. We could spend a week just talking about that custom and what that meant and what it looked like. It's an amazing thing they did. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and have men call them rabbi. Okay. They like the preeminence. Every once in a while I'll joke with somebody, usually somebody little, their kid or something, I'll be talking at the back and I say, you want to come up and sit with me this morning? And they say, what? And I say, we got seats up here. You want know, to come up here? And they all go, no. Well, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, would say, well, of course. It's where I belong. And I think that's probably where the chief seats were, so they could watch everybody. Yeah, that's what they like. They love to have the preeminence. Uh, and then he starts teaching a little bit, and he says, but you are you are not to be called rabbi. And then he goes on and says, you're not to be called my father. You're not to call anybody teacher. Uh, you're supposed to be a servant. The, the point is that the people he's talking about love titles. I, I got an email this week from, I guess it's not 
too condemning or judging to say it's a fellow preacher. But his name at the bottom of the email was about six lines long. It had degree, 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 and title, title, title. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't think of doing that, I hope. And Jesus said, don't do that. Uh, now, none of them were rabbi or father or teacher, so I, I guess he's legal, but he had a lot of stuff down there. Uh, anyhow, he tells them all that, and then... Instead of turning to the apostles, it looks like in verse 13, he turns to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He had a crowd here now. Had a crowd and the disciples, and evidently, at least some from the uh, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they seem to follow him all the time to kind of keep an eye on him and gather information. But some of them were standing over there, and we don't know if it was one, two, or twenty, but some of them anyway. And he turned to them and said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And then he goes through seven woes and lists things that they do on top of all the things he's just told the disciples about. And... I say every once in a while there's a passage that I wish somehow the writer could convey to us the tone in which it was given. An audio recording, I think it would be a whole lot more fun. Uh, You you learn a lot more. But this part, uh, this whole chapter actually, it would be interesting to see if, if Jesus' tone changed and how it changed when he quit talking to the crowds, uh, to the disciples, I imagine that part was just pretty factual. You know, don't do what they do. You know, they do everything to be seen of men. They tie up heavy loads and put on people. Uh, don't, don't do that. But then when he turned to the Pharisees, I've always kind of imagined that, you know, he kind of thundered a little bit. But I don't know. It might have been the other direction. He might have just been shaking his head and looking at them and thinking, Oh, woe to you, you teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You shut up the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You, know, you do things that keep people from wanting to enter the kingdom. You make it so hard on them. So I don't know if he was thundering at them and yelling or if he was just letting them know how pitiful the stuff they did was. But he was getting the point across. He was, he was hammering here. Second one, he says, woe to you. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. You talk somebody into believing in Jehovah God. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Get back. That, that'll straighten you out. Uh, but that's what he told them. He said, you think you're the followers of God? The only followers are your sons of hell. And when you make a convert, which is a good thing, instead of teaching him how to praise God and do the things he ought to do, you teach him what you do. 
You, you teach him as long as you follow all these little dinky rules, you don't have to know anything about justice and mercy. He's just getting rolling here. Next one, whoa, you blind guides. And he goes into this whole thing about swearing by the temple and swearing by the gold in the temple, and we sure don't have time to explain that. But these clowns had made up this system of man-made tricks so you could sound like you were swearing by something important, but it didn't count. That's the first example. If anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. Okay, that was one rule they'd made up. If you just swear by the temple, it really doesn't count. You don't have to keep that oath. But if you swear by the gold in the temple, that's more important. So that one you got to keep. I mean, not only are those dumb and illogical, they're, they're just tricks so they can manipulate people. He calls them blind fools, and he tells them some other examples of that. And they had all kinds of rules and regulations on that one. And woe to you, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You count out the little herbs in your garden to make sure you get a tenth of them. But the important things, justice and mercy and faithfulness, you don't even worry about it. And he says it's all right, you should you should tithe, that's good, but you can't let that go. And he does the strain of the gnat and swallowing a camel thing. They worry about the little stuff, but the biggies they forget. Uh, starting to feel sorry for these guys. But then he gives them the cleaning the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of greed. Then he gives them the tombs, whitewashed on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. Uh, and then he goes back in history, and their descendants were the ones who murdered the prophets. And then he ups it just a little bit. You snakes, you brood of vipers. That's quite a chapter, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that was for the disciples. But remember, he started out by saying, now you got to do what they tell you to do. Because they have the authority of Moses. They, they run the temple, they make these rules and all that, but don't do what they do. They're a mess. Okay. So I guess the application for us would be religious leaders and being careful about uh, doing what they do if they're hypocrites like this. All right, the seven woes, he warns them against false teachers. Luke chapter 16 Kind of an odd parable, but at the end of it, he tells us what it means about you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money both. Yeah. Warns them about materialism. And uh, one thing about the one weakness in this lesson is I just picked one verse out and says he taught them about materialism. If you look at how many times he talked about that, and how many different groups of disciples and crowds he talked about that. That's number two of all of the, the volume of all the things he talked about. He, he warned them a lot about materialism. First was hypocrisy, religious hypocrisy. He talked about that a ton, but he talked about 
materialism nine-tenths of a ton. So those are the two biggies that he talked about all the time. And when you're reading through the four Gospels, it just keeps popping up. It just keeps reminding, warning people about that. Uh, okay, so that's how he dealt with disciples. Now, we may be going through this so fast that you're just thinking, okay, that's kind of interesting, but how are we doing on some of this stuff? You know, like the multitudes. Anybody deal with the multitudes last week? How many of you saw the Syrian refugees on television? Yeah, see, some of you won't even admit you watch television. I tell you. Anyhow, <laughs> what do you think about that? How do you deal with multitudes in the 21st century? Hopefully, we had compassion on them. Yeah. But, but what are you going to do for them? Well, what did Jesus do for multitudes? Nothing, really. He taught them a little bit. But he, he couldn't fix all the multitudes. I, mean, I guess he could have done something to heal them all and give them all a million dollars or something, but he didn't. He spent a little time with them. He taught them some things, but he didn't spend his life trying to fix multitudes. Yeah, it's a compassionate thing, but the reason I mention that is because you see articles in the paper and uh, opinion columns and you see Brethren on Facebook saying we got to do something about this. We got to fix this. Well, do we? You know, the people I see writing those columns don't have anybody staying in the basement with them that I know of. You know, I mean, it's one thing to have compassion and talk about it and be compassionate in your talk, but multitudes—that's a big problem to fix. I mean, the classic was when the Pope came over and told us we needed to be more compassionate. I don't think the gates of the Vatican are open. You know, he's not fixing any multitudes. He's telling everybody else to. Well, it helps me to understand that Jesus dealt with multitudes by, yeah, he felt sorry for them, but he, couldn't, he didn't fix them. He went to work on people's hearts that were serious. Prospective followers, he'd pick out the ones that were serious and try to get them to doing what they ought to be. When they became his disciples, he corrected what wrong ideas they had. He told them not to follow certain people. He tested their faith. He tried to grow them up into somebody that could help people. But if the teaching was too hard for them, he didn't beg them to come back. He was after that group that could do something and would do something. Okay, draw some conclusions like that for yourself, and maybe this will be a little more meaningful. Next week, get to the apostles. We can, uh, I think we'll see it just a little bit different in, under the microscope instead of this whole Sunday night series we've been doing. So we'll summarize a few of those things. All right, the lesson is yours. Thank you for being here tonight. If you have any uh, needs of this family while we're together, we'd be happy to help you with that. 
You can put Christ on in baptism or seek prayer from your brothers and sisters, whatever's on your heart. I'll be at the front here to come. Let's stand and sing.